Isaiah chapter 32, Isaiah chapter 2. And as I said, this is a prophecy about the Messiah. Chapter 32 is about Jesus, the Messiah. And it's a prophecy that looks to the future. And it tells us about some of the things that we can look forward to. Now, at the beginning of the nation of Israel's history, the nation of Israel was governed by God. Nation Israel was a theocracy with God as their king. It wasn't a monarch that is led by human rulers. And during the days of Samuel, the people asked God for a king. And God gave them Saul. But God didn't set up a family line, a dynasty, through the family of Saul because Saul didn't come from the tribe of Judah. And that's where the Messiah was to come through the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah. It was through David who established both the family line, the dynasty for Israel's throne, and the ancestry for Israel's Messiah. And every devout Jew knew that the future Messiah king would be the son of David. So chapter 32 here looks ahead to what we can expect. And then when we get to chapter 35, Isaiah will talk again about this reign of Christ in this kingdom age. And he'll talk about some of the wonderful things about that reign. But here in chapter 32, he gives you some insights. So let's begin with chapter 32 with verses 1 and 2. And it says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again, where he says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. The king would be Jesus. And it says, Princes will rule with justice. And then it says, A man, again, speaking of Jesus, will be as a hiding place, that is, a refuge from the wind, and a cover or a shield from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place. The rivers of water are symbolic of satisfaction. He will be satisfaction like rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow or comfort a shadow is comforting of a great rock which is jesus in a weary land so when you think about the dark days that the people here were experiencing this would be a message of comfort and hope to god's people and instead of being an an oppressor that's spoken about here in verses one and two you know, instead of being an oppressor of the common man, he's a protection from catastrophe and a source of kind, loving deeds. Our Jesus, it says here, is a hiding place. In other words, he's our refuge and he's a cover that is a shield. And he's like rivers of water in a dry place. He's a source of satisfaction. He's a shadow, Isaiah says. He's our comfort. And in verse 1, Isaiah writes about a king. Here in verse 1, Isaiah writes about a, about a king. In Isaiah thirty three seventeen, Isaiah calls him the king. And by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, he is our king. It's not enough to say that Jesus is a king or even the king, but we must confess by faith, our faith in him and say with great assurance that he is our king, making it personal. Like Thomas, can we say, my Lord and my God? Like the psalmist in Psalm 23, 1. Like David, can we say, the Lord is my shepherd? 
like Nathaniel in John 1.49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. A lot of people in Judah had suffered a lot of wrongdoing from evil rulers. And they so badly wanted to have a strong king who would rule uh, and, and treat them fairly. And this desire will be fulfilled when Jesus reigns. Evil will be done away with, and the king, Jesus, will reign in righteousness, and he will rule with justice. In the immediate future, though, Judah would be destroyed and taken into captivity. But one day, God's son, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who is not like any other king, will reign in righteousness. Now, King Sennacherib was probably a serious strength. This man was their rock, with all of his nearly quarter of a million warriors. But here is our king Isaiah is talking about. He's not like a lot of kings who want the pomp and the splendor of human power. Like King Herod did, as we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Remember, he went out to speak to the people, and it says he put on royal robes. He sat on his beautiful throne. He made a great speech to them, and the people were giving him a great you know, ovation and applauding him, and they were shouting, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And boy, he was soaking it all up. He accepted the people's worship. He did not glorify God, and God took him out. Our Messiah reigns, but He reigns in righteousness and humility. And His righteous rule makes Him a shelter from the storm. He's a king, it says in Mark, who came to serve and not to be served. Jesus' own words. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, notice, gentle and lowly, humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and isaiah is saying here that the messiah's lordship his authority his rulership is what makes us into new people when he's in control of everything everything is new revelation 21 5 says then he who sat on the throne christ said behold i make all things new like conversion God doesn't fix up the old, but he makes entirely new, in this particular passage of Revelation 21.5, a new heaven and a new earth. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not the old fixed up or patched up, but new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The great changes that reconciliation makes with the sinner are changes that only the gospel can bring to men. And there are at least three important changes that take place, takes place when a person gets saved. There's a change in their devotion. Before being saved, hey, we were devoted to the world. We were devoted to the world. But there's a change in devotion when one comes to Christ. It's no longer about me anymore. It's no longer about what I want. It's no longer about my desires. A person's interest will change greatly. A saved person is now interested in spiritual things, which an unsaved person is not. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, witnessing. Those are the new changes that are made in the believer when they reconcile with Christ. A saved person will have devotion, that is dedication, consecration, separation, adoration for Jesus, which an unsaved person won't have. 
A second change that we see after reconciliation is a change in behavior. There will be a change in the person's behavior when he gets saved or she gets saved. They'll be, and they'll be reconciled to God. And this change will especially be noticed if the person who was saved in his adult life. The third thing that we see when we're reconciled to Christ is there's a change in their destiny, where they're going to spend eternity. Now, this is the greatest and most important change of all. The unreconciled soul, the unsaved soul, the ungenerated soul is headed for eternity in hell. But the eternal destiny of the one reconciled to Christ is headed for heaven for all eternity. That newness that Jesus Christ brings, that's the answer to all of man's foolish and failed ideas that have failed all through history. Look at according to what verse 3 and 4 says. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. It's his righteous sovereignty, his, his will, his purpose, that, that, that takes away the spiritual dullness that we once had and wakes us up spiritually. And he does that through the word of God. You know, when we first got saved, when we began to read the scriptures, it began to change our lives through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody had to tell us what to do. As we read the scriptures, it, the Holy Spirit would bring conviction and he would give us the power to make those changes in our lives. He does it through the word of God. And as our hearts are open to the word of God and we're taught, then we see and then we, we sense the hope that we have. And we see the spiritual riches that we have. And we see the power that we have in Christ. And when Jesus reigns in righteousness, as spoken of here, men are going to see clearly, Isaiah says. They're not going to call darkness light anymore and light darkness. They won't call evil good and good evil, nor sweet bitter and bitter sweet. They won't do that anymore. Things will be seen for what they really are. And that's why the wicked or foolish man, as verse 5 says, in that day they will no longer be thought of as a generous, decent, and the foolish or selfish man. They will no longer be respected for his prosperity. And with these new clear convictions, these new beliefs in, 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 in our hearts, we're changed according to verses 5 through 8. Notice, the foolish person, notice, will no, no longer be called generous. Nor the miser said to be bountiful, for the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the, the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans uh, to destroy the, the, uh, the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by, by generosity he shall stand." So compared to the man who will be destroyed by his own desires, his own self-interest, and, and giving in to his own lusts and his fleshly appetites, the generous man, it says in verse 8, will prosper because of his selflessness. So Jesus not only perfectly represents this principle of selflessness, but he put it into his own words when he said, He who finds life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it now what would be look what, what would look to be gain is loss and what looks to be loss is gain 
And this is always true when it comes to spiritual things. The world sees them as a, as a waste of time, the spiritual things. They see it as a waste of time, but God's people, we know better. When a person gives their life to Jesus, the world says, man, you're throwing your life away. You know, you're living in bondage. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't go here. You can't go there. But the follower of Christ, they are gaining. They're not losing. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, but what things were gained to me, those things that were important to Paul, he said, he says, now I've counted loss. They're they're nothing for, for the gain of Christ. He says, yet indeed, I also count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Notice, he says, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, after Paul got saved, there were a lot of things that he highly valued that weren't so valuable to him anymore. And when he says all things, which Paul had gained before he was saved, they lost their value. As far as he was concerned, they weren't important to him anymore. They weren't valuable to him anymore. The word all means there was a total change in Paul's perspectives and values. You see, new men, born of the Spirit, new women, born of the Spirit, they come to life and then they recognize their true worth. But it's all because of the Lordship, the authority of Jesus Christ in in their life. It's his goodness and his grace to us verses 9 through 11 rise up you women who are at ease hear my voice you complacent daughters give ear to my speech in a year and some days you will be troubled you will complacent women for the vintage will fail the gathering will not come tremble you women you who are at ease be troubled you complacent ones strip yourselves and make yourselves bare and gird sackcloth on your waists Isaiah tells us here in verse 10 that it's harvest time. Harvest time is a time of prosperity, a time of joy. The houses were happy. You know, there was a lot of joy going on and the city was happy. But Isaiah is giving a warning here to the women here. He says that in a year or so, the crops are going to fail. And that they should stop rejoicing and and they should start mourning. Isaiah sees the women here in Jerusalem as clear example of spiritual complacency. And he uses the word complacency three times in each verse, 9, 10, and 11. Now, there's nothing wrong with a life of quiet satisfaction. When you go down to verse 17, notice it says, The work of righteousness will peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. So there's nothing wrong with a life of of quiet satisfaction. Even Solomon in Exodus 9, 7 through 9, he said, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Solomon said, Enjoy your meals. And in verse 8, he says, Enjoy every occasion. He says, Let your garments always be white, which is a symbol of joy, and let your head lack no oil. And then in verse 9, he speaks about enjoying your marriage. He says, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vantage, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. But these women that Isaiah was talking about here in verses 9 through 11, or that he was talking to, he was warning them that they were living in a a false peace. 
for that, for that present time. So here's the problem. The men at the royal courts, they were pacing the hallways because they, worried, they were worried about Assyria. They were, about, they were worried about the danger that God had already promised them to take care of. But the women at home, they couldn't sense the danger that was coming. They weren't worried about anything. And this is the kind of happiness that will kill us. Earthly contentment with no desire for God. And that's the point that, Paul was, that, that, that Isaiah was talking about here. The point here is that the Messianic kingdom is no place for dreamers. All right, for the prejudice, for, for materialism. But there is a way back to God and His way out of our complacency that will destroy us. Our, heart, our soul is right here in front of us in this prophecy. We need to listen to the prophecies in God's Word with an open heart so that, when, that, so that we accept even the tough truths, the hard truths that call us to change. God knows what our needs are, and He knows them so well that His world, all, Word also includes this in James 4, 9 through 10. Lament and mourn and weep. He said, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Verses 12 through 14. Isaiah goes on and says, People shall mourn upon their breasts. For the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. Because, and here's why, the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and the towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. In Isaiah, in verse 11, Isaiah commanded the women to mourn. And here now he describes how the mourning is to be done. He says they're to beat their chest and to, and to mourn because the land wasn't going to produce abundantly like it had always done before. He says the land is going to be covered with thorns and with briars. He said your happy homes and your happy towns are going to be gone. And the palace and the city, they're going to be deserted. The towns, he says, that were once uh, uh, busy and hustle and, and bustle and, and all activity was going they're going to be empty and he says wild donkeys are going to kick up their heels there in that city in that empty city and flocks are going to graze in the empty forests forts and watchtower watchtowers look at verse 15 until the spirit notice until the holy spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest all of this verses 1 through 14 is going to take place this is what's going to happen until the holy spirit falls upon them the sad condition of the city was just described in verse 14 Notice again, the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs uh, forever, and a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture uh, of flocks. Wild animals are just going to take over it all. So again, in verse 14, the sad condition of the city was described there by Isaiah. But in ver and, and it's going to come to an end. And then verse 15 now says, when that time will be. When it comes to an end, he says, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, from above. 
Now, when will the Holy Spirit be poured out? During the millennium when Jesus reigns. That will be the greatest time of spiritual blessing and people turning to Christ because at that time, He will be reigning in person. Now, that doesn't mean that every knee is going to bow to Him at that time. But every knee, every knee, uh, every knee will bow to Him eventually. But the kingdom will be a time of testing because at that time, Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron and everybody's going to toe the line. But then at that end of that thousand year reign, Satan's going to be let out of the bottomless pit to have his rebellion one more time to see who is truly saved and truly following Christ. Joel, Joel mentions this outpouring in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. He says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my serv- men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This prophecy here looks forward to the coming millennial kingdom. God here is promising to pour out His Spirit upon us with such an abundance that it fills our lives. This isn't just a little sprinkling of the Holy Spirit, a little sprinkling here and there. He's talking about an outpouring that drenches and washes away all complacency like a flood. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, everything changes. We see three great outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Before the end times, as Joel chapter 2 speaks of here. At the end of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And in the millennial kingdom as seen here in chapter 32. Verse 16. Then, notice, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. And righteousness remain in the fruitful field. So just as the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus Christ and empowers Him so that He judges righteously. The same thing happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the land, then justice, that is fairness and righteousness, will live in the land. What used to be a land of wilderness, righteousness now dwells there. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jerusalem, she becomes filled with justice and righteousness and they'll dwell there forever. Men try today, and they're still trying today so hard in their own wisdom and their own power to have justice and righteousness in the land. I mean, look at our land today. It's so far from justice. It's so far from righteousness. But that's because they're trying so hard to bring it about in their own wisdom, in their own power. They're passing laws. They're coming up with new ones all the time, trying to make it a better world, trying to make it a better... It's not working. They're making it even worse because they've taken God out of all that they can, they can take, it, take Him away from. So they're making it worse. Again, trying to make a perfect place and perfect conditions to live in, but it's never going to happen apart from Jesus Christ. Again, look where we are today. Jesus said in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. What does that mean? Nothing that is spiritually good. Nothing at all. Whether it's little or great. Whether it's easy or hard to be, to be performed. 
You know, he, he, we can do nothing without. Well, again, we cannot think a, a good thought, speak a good word, do a good action. You can neither begin one nor when it is begun, neither can we perfect it. Nothing is to be done without Jesus. Without His Spirit, without His grace, without His strength, and without His presence, or being separated from Him. Like the branches from the vine. They won't flourish. They won't produce. They won't bear fruit. And if it was possible for the branches that are truly in Him to be removed from Him, like I said, they couldn't bring forth any fruits. It is any fruit of any good works. Any more than a branch separated from the line can can grow grapes so that all the fruitfulness of a believer is to be attributed to Christ. All of our fruitfulness, all of our goodness, everything that we produce that's of any good is to be given the credit attributed to Christ and His grace and not to our free will and our power. We can't produce it. When justice and righteousness is found, it's because the Holy Spirit has been poured out from on high and because justice and righteousness are the gifts of God alone. So in all parts of the kingdom of Christ, from the lowest to the highest, justice and righteousness will flourish, replacing that false joy with the real joy of peace, quietness, and trust forever. And God is keeping this promise. He's been doing it for over 2,000 years. And since Pentecost, he continues to pour out his Holy Spirit to this very day. He pours out his love uh, into our own hearts. Now, our part is to open up to the Holy Spirit. To the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is the secret power of God's people and nothing else. It has nothing to do with me or my my wisdom or 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 my my power verse 17 and 18 the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places now here we see the outcome of righteousness holiness brings about peace and assurance you know, in Hebrews it says, without holiness, we shall not see God. The Holy Spirit is the only one who gives righteousness. And righteousness gives peace. So, peace can never be attained through any sinful work of man. There's nothing he can do. It's only by righteousness alone. And there's only one that's righteous. Remember, as Hebrews tells us, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. These two goals, that is justice and righteousness, remind us of our Lord's high priestly ministry. He was the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Hebrews 7, 1 and 2 tell us. It requires endurance. It requires diligence. It requires everything that we have. It, to, to run the race successfully or we will fall short of the grace of God. Hebrews twelve fifteen. So it requires diligence. God's grace never fails. It won't fail, but we can fail if we don't take advantage of His grace. Justice and righteousness also produces quietness. 
Now, this is, uh, this is quite different from the confidence that the people had who lived in Jerusalem, the self-confidence that they had that lived in Jerusalem that lulled them into a false security. And that's what happens when we become complacent and we become lazy in the Lord. We begin to depend upon oh, everything's going so good and you know, I'm feeling so good and, and, I, and, I, and everything just seems to be you know, flowing. We can become complacent. And then we, 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 we're lulled into this false security. Everything is okay. But this quietness that Isaiah is talking about, it comes from righteousness. It comes from a complete resting in God's wonderful word. Jesus said, come to me, who is the word. He says, and you will find rest for your souls. And this quietness is founded. It's based on the word of God, the promises of God. And the work of the Holy Spirit. And this kind of quietness, this kind of rest, that's, it's a rest that will last forever. What a difference between the world's peace, which is non-existent really, or very temporary, what a difference between the world's peace and the peace of God. The peace the world gives is so easily lost. The peace the Holy Spirit gives has no end. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said, I have overcome the world. In Christ's kingdom, there will be peace. And it will be a true peace. It will be a lasting peace. It will not be a false peace, which is the result of the reign of Christ's righteousness. There will be no, more, <clears throat> no wars, no quarrels, no hostility, no hate. All will be the fruit of, all of those are the fruit of unrighteousness. The effect of righteousness will be rest. It will be quietness. The confidence that they had would be a sure confidence, not an impulsive and foolish one like the, the women had, that false sense of security that, that Isaiah was talking about in verses 10 and 11. And if we're walking with the Lord and we're confessing our sin and we're allowing Him to change our life, then we will have peace and quietness and assurance in our life. And you know, sometimes we're not doing people a favor when we try to comfort and calm their unrest, when they really need to go to the Lord and ask Him to show them the reason for their unrest. Lord, why am I going through this? Why am I experiencing this? A lot of people today are looking for a little peace and a little quiet in this crazy world. But again, lasting peace and quietness cannot be found. You know, even in our, in our, in our getaways and our vacations, and I'm not saying, you know, we love our getaways and vacations. And that's why we get away and we go on those vacations. It, we're, it, we're just away from the craziness. But we don't want to come back, do we? Why? Because we know what's waiting for us. We know what's waiting for us. 
We have to come back into the hustle and the bustle and the trials of life and the things that Satan has waiting for us. The battle, the spiritual warfare, lasting peace and quiet are the outcome of Christ's righteousness. So we need to ask God, Lord, search our heart because when we're righteous in him, man, that's when we're going to have peace. That's when we're going to have quietness and that's when we're going to have assurance that isn't dependent upon the way things are going in my life. Not dependent upon my surroundings. Verses 19 and 20. Though all hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed or happy are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Isaiah has been saying, you don't need to run to Egypt for, for, for protection because God will save you. And he fin- finishes by saying a couple of things here. First, in verse 19, he says, when God brings renewal, things don't say, stay the same. He says here, the forest is, is cut down. He says, and the city of Jerusalem is humbled. And whenever God moves... There's change. The world and the church are in for some prizes, for surprises, some surprises when God moves. But you know what? The, the, the turmoil the turmoil is a blessing. It's worth it because God is moving in it. God is doing something. So in closing, in verse 20 here, Isaiah gives us a picture of a peaceful, richly supplied country scene with plenty of water and such an abundant crop that nobody even bothers to chase the animals out of the fields. The peaceful picture that, that he started in verse 15, he finishes it here in verse 20. The people of the kingdom have a well watered land, they live there peacefully. They plant their seed, it says here, beside the waters. They have abundant crops, abundant pasture for the peaceful animals and the ox and the donkey. Judah could have enjoyed safety and quietness and assurance if they would have only trusted totally in the Lord and not gone to Egypt for help. Righteousness is the key word in verse 17. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Because there can be no peace, true peace, without a right relationship with God. And when sinners trust Jesus and they receive that gift of righteousness that we can only receive in Him, He's our righteousness, then they can have peace in their lives and in their hearts. And also with peace with one another. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful prophecy, Lord. And the quietness and the righteousness and the peace and the assurance that we will experience forever, Lord. Father, we look forward to that day. And Lord, we pray, Jesus, come quickly. And Father, help us to run the race with diligence, with endurance. Father, give us the strength that we need 
Help us to keep our eyes on the finish line. Not worry about how far we've gone. Not looking back at how far we've come, but looking to the finish line to see how much longer we have to go. Because that's when it's going to count when we reach the finish line. And you'll be there waiting for us. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful promises that we have in Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who pours out his love and his power upon us, his strength, his teaching. And so, Father, may we go now in the power of the Holy Spirit. May we seek him. May we look to him to lead us and to guide us. And again, he's, he's a necessity to us. Not an option, not a luxury. So Father, we give you praise, we give you honor. And once again, we thank you for our salvation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.